Many entrepreneurs talk passionately about their quest for perfection, whether that's endlessly chasing an elusive dream or ambition, or a more practical, achievable pursuit of new standards of excellence. This objective of perfection, whether in the development of products, the delivery of services, or even the creation of a whole new marketplace, informs many of the most successful enterprises. On today's programme, we're meeting two innovative businesses bound by their shared commitment to construct exactly that perfection. One of these businesses is creating the perfect modern suit, using a model of manufacture that directly combats fashion's largest vice, waste. The other is a clever business founded by a pair of entrepreneurial brothers seeking to create a new standard of perfection in casual headwear by fashioning the best-fitting premium baseball caps on the market. So whether it's reimagining the suit with fresh emphasis on versatility and comfort ahead of traditional aesthetics, or changing up the cap to ensure perfect fit, feel and fabrics, these are two great businesses putting their best foot forward, all in pursuit of perfection. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs, with me, Tom Edwards. We start today with Batch London, an innovative business seeking to redefine the suit by challenging received wisdom around the garment's traditional formal style. But, and perhaps most importantly, founders Sam Mattenley and Julian Osborne are using a, yes, you guessed it, batch model of production to address waste and deadstock, critical issues across the fashion trade. All this while keeping a strong emphasis on versatility and comfort for customers at the very heart of the operation. So, how are they getting on? Well, let's find out. Sam and Julian popped into Midori House here in London to tell Monocle's Christy Evans all about their journey. Here's Sam. The traditional suit as it is, is very limited and you have to wear it in a certain way to a certain style, to a certain occasion. And we were finding ourselves wearing a suit to work and then having to change clothes and going on a night out afterwards. So we wanted to create something that was versatile, sustainable and comfortable and there to redefine and replace the traditional suit as we know it. So we've created a casual, smart two-piece garment that you can dress up or dress down to fit any occasion and suit your own personal preferences and express your own style but we wanted to take it one step further and really not be part of the problem but part of the solution in that fast fashion is a chronic disease almost to push it that far for our globe at the moment and some of the stats out there are particularly worrying so we created a suit that is made on what we're calling a batch model whereby you purchase your suit but it gets delivered eight to ten weeks later because we only make as many suits as are needed. So once you've ordered, you'll get your suit made for you. And in doing so, we cut out all waste, all overproduction, and therefore all dead stock in the supply chain. That's very interesting. So you've basically got two very strong ideas. You've got the use of the suit and also the impact it has on the environment and trying to mitigate that. And you're bringing them together. Given the need for the suit to be versatile and also be kind to the world, what does the suit look like? Let's talk about material style. Can you walk me through what this batch is going to look like? So our original style that we wanted to take inspiration from was the classic chore jacket, a workman's jacket. It's It's a casual garment. The typical traditional suit is a blazer and it can't really be worn with anything else other than suit trousers, whereas the chore jacket offers a lot of versatility. It can be worn with jeans, it can be worn with chinos, it can be worn with all sorts of different types of trousers. So we took that and importantly, it can be worn by men and women. 
We took that as an initial starting point and then paired it with a trouser that we thought was slightly smarter. So you bring together the casual nature of a chore jacket and pair it with a, a straight cut trouser with a nice pleat down the middle. You, you find yourself with a very casual, smart look, which is what we were hoping to achieve. Something that was a, appropriate for the workplace, but also look cool on a night out, look cool in a pub, look good in the club. You can wear on a date, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it strikes that really important balance between smart and casual. So that was the initial inspiration. In terms of material, one big focus that we've had is around comfort. Traditionally, the typical suit, for the most part, can be uncomfortable, especially the modern hybrid worker is out and about. He's on the tube, he's on the bus, he's on a bike. Uh, you know, he's going to his mate's house afterwards, their mate's house, etc. So we wanted to make sure that our suit was particularly comfortable. So Sam and I went back and forth over hundreds of cotton samples thousands, <laughs> thousands thousands trying to find a cotton that was befitting of the the modern worker so we wanted something comfortable something stretchy so we compromised on 100% cotton and decided that adding 2% elastane to our cotton would add that functionality that we wanted in a suit. So going up and down escalators in the tube station is not going to be difficult for people anymore because they've got that spring in the trousers. And when Sav and I first put the trousers on, that's the initial feeling that you get is that these are super comfortable. You're going to want to wear them all day. It's really not over the top to say they are the most comfortable trousers that I've owned. And I'm delighted that it's a, a business that I'm promoting, but it's the truth. So, yeah, that was a really big point for us, the, the comfort element. I think it goes further than that as well. Having that 2% elastin allows you to have a garment that's significantly more durable as well. Mm -hmm. You don't end up with baggy knees, which is a, a big gripe of mine in any trousers that I own. And it means that they stretch to go through any occasion that you're doing, any exercise, etc. You're not going to end up with loose reds and rips or whatever it might be. And then just to go a bit further into why we ended up with the, the cotton we ended up with, it's from a beautiful factory in Italy who are one of the largest cotton manufacturers in the world. And what they've done from a sustainability perspective is is mind-blowing. And it's as sustainable as you can get without going to the organic cotton world, which we deliberately avoided because by the time you get into it, you end up with far more limited choice. It's really, really difficult to get a hold of at the moment. And all that would end up happening is we're able to deliver this change of perspective in, in how we should be shopping and changing our consumer habits to fewer people at a higher cost. And so we decided that we wanted to go one step at a time and pick our battles and, and turn as many people towards this new way of shopping as possible and not charge ludicrous prices and, and have stupidly long wait times. Mm. Maybe we could talk a bit about the sustainability part of it. And maybe, Sam, this is a question you might be able to answer. Yeah. What are you guys doing? Because obviously this is like made to order. What is the process that you have in place to mitigate from returns and waste through returns? Because that's a big part of the industry, isn't it? Absolutely. It's a really interesting question. And, and again, it's a key factor of, of the fast fashion world that is causing big issues at the moment. We're talking about from a waste of clothing perspective, but... If you look at this buy and return model, it's pretty bleak, for want of a better word. So it was one of the big focuses that we had was firstly to look at ways to mitigate returns, first and foremost. And there's a few different things that and concepts that we've come up with that we're looking to, to put in place. Firstly, from getting the fit spot on, the most important bit with any bit of clothing, in our opinion. So we've got a ladies fit and a men's fit. They don't work together because we've got different body shapes and we've spent a lot of time and gone through several rounds of samples to get to the perfect fit plus as julia mentioned using a, a very comfortable elasticated cotton aids that but we've also added things like 
buckles on the waistband so you can add or, or lose an inch depending on what you've eaten that day or whatever it is. And then further than that, we've gone into elaborate detail with our, our size guide as well as a how to measure yourself guide. And we're looking to introduce some effectively sewing measuring tapes that we'll send out to our consumers so they can measure themselves before the event, get the perfect size. And we're hoping that our community will want to mitigate sending things back as much as, as we do, as well as a few other things like we're looking to link with a, a number of tailors around London to give you a discount and getting any alterations made. So first and foremost, get it altered. If you still don't like it, send it back. And we're we're lucky to be operating on a, a limited supply and looking to have lots of demand and it and it's already getting to a point that we're really happy with. But what it will mean is that if any suits come back to us, they'll get released back to the wait list and, and we'll find a home for them. Great. And talking about the batch model, which is why you're named Batch London, mm -hmm. how does that work? Because as you just said, Sam, you have a limited number. So what is that number currently and how do you become one of the people to get a suit? Currently, the number is 200 suits for our first batch. That would be 100 men's and 100 women's and 50 of each colour. So it is a really limited supply and the easiest way to get hold of one or, or become part of that batch is to join the waitlist on our website. Once you've joined the waitlist, you'll have an opportunity, a window to purchase the suits where we'll be launching actually at 11am on the 25th of May. So keep an eye out. But as it goes live, everyone will have a link to go and purchase their suit and it's done on a first come first serve basis. Great. And then if you don't get that, you get put on the waitlist. Exactly. What happened thereafter? You know, how many batches do you think you'd do a year? What would each batch look like? Would they change? So at the moment, as it stands, we're aiming to do three batches a year. They'll scale up in, in quantity and in the amount that we're producing, but they'll always be capped. So that's the short-term goal. And it's likely to stay at that because it's manageable. And importantly, it allows us time to focus on the eight to ten weeks that people are waiting for their suits. So essentially, the eight weeks provides a really nice opportunity for us to take our customers people that have been lucky enough to be able to purchase a suit on a journey of how their suit is made and who is actually making it so a really transparent journey so we'll be providing weekly or bi-weekly video updates emails to the customers letting them know where their suits up to who's making it behind the scenes stuff from our factory so it's a really unique immersive shopping experience that you're really getting value from and people aren't just sat waiting for eight weeks like where's my suit they really get you know they've got vested interest in, in how their garments are being made and it adds a lot more value knowing that you're one of 200 suits you know who's made it how it's made and you know when it's going to arrive with you and that mitigates the issue around patience you know ultimately we're doing this because it's for the betterment of the planet we're tackling waste we want to change consumer culture because as it stands we all buy stuff and don't use it enough or wear it once or don't wear it at all it, it ends up in landfill so you know this batch model is facilitating an opportunity for people to buy more sustainably because Sam and I have done tons of market research and what was a common theme was that people do care about buying sustainably but for the most part it's either too expensive or not easy enough to come across and we think that the batch model is a as I said, facilitating, you know, actionable change. And it's an opportunity for people to buy something more sustainably. And we're hopefully rewarding them with a really immersive, interesting shopping experience where they'll hopefully learn a lot about. Because I think most people don't understand how clothes are produced. Until you get shown around a factory, you have no idea that there are 80 seamstresses all chatting away, having a lovely day, making these brilliant suits. You don't know it. So we're, we're going to have this opportunity to show them that, which, you know, hopefully will be really special. And um, 
change the way that people perceive buying clothes, which is what needs to happen in order to tackle waste. There needs to be a, a seismic change, you know, a radical overhaul. So that's what we're, what we're aiming to achieve with the batch model. Cool. So currently you guys are still plugging away at your day jobs mm-hmm. as well as doing batch. You're gearing up to your launch. So where do you want to see yourselves and the business this time next year and in five years and forevermore after that? What's your plan and what is your dream, I guess, your vision? I think we have pretty pokey ambitions. We see ourselves going big time. This time next year, we want to have created several successful batches and brought and meant a number of people into our communities. We don't really just want people to wear our suits. We want them to feel like they're part of what we're doing and buy into our psychology and become part of our batch as well as feed us ideas and help us grow the business as a community. In five years time, we want to be a globally recognised brand that has done everything we can to kickstart that change in the way that we buy things. We're not stupid to sit here and say that fast fashion is never going to be a thing because it was heavily ingrained within our culture, but we want to do as much as we can to start that change and start to change people's thought processes. And so whilst we're starting in suits and that's where we'll build it, we have opportunity to take it into other garments later down the line and and there's loads of places we can take it. But primarily we want to get as many people brought into what we're doing as possible. That's our plan. Sam's rounded that up nicely, I think. You know, ultimately, long term, we both have ambitions of running our own successful business. And that's where the motivation comes from. And the natural passion in in fashion is obviously a a motivating factor, too. So I think fundamentally, that's what's driving it. But yeah, I would would love to have an internationally recognized business and be people from all over the world looking to buy into the batches. That would be a big goal of ours. That was Batch London's founders, Sam Mattenley and Julian Osborne, talking to our own Christy Evans. From today, as they mentioned, you can buy the first batch and you can learn how to do that and more about the brand and its manufacturing principles by heading to batchldn.com. Next up, we're heading to Oslo. Around about a decade ago, Anglo-Norwegian brothers Seb and Alex Adams put their shared entrepreneurial and design passions into effect in pursuit of something that had for them so far proved elusive, the perfect baseball cap. Growing up in Norway, but with a passion for heritage US hat brands, the brothers were always passionate about the right cap, but as adults were simply never able to find exactly the right combination of materials, provenance, fit and style. So followed 12 months of intense planning, design and development. And the result of all that was Varsity Headwear, now going strong and going ever more global in new markets and reaching more customers, but always staying true to that founding pursuit of baseball cap perfection. Seb and Alex Adams, a very warm welcome to The Entrepreneurs. Talk to us a bit about the origin story, Seb and Alex. You wanted to create something that was timeless, that was premium, that was made from the best materials. Was it just that you simply couldn't find something that brought all of those qualities together in one place? What was the frustration that you were experiencing? I think there were multiple, really, but a big part of it was growing up, it was okay kind of having, you know, maybe a branded, like a team caps or something like that. But as we kind of grew up, I think we were looking for the functional product, but not necessarily showcasing someone else's team or brand or something else. For us, we were really looking for like more like a modern hat rather than a cap, really. 
So that was one element, kind of the, the visual aspect. The second element was, it was quite difficult to get a quality baseball cap. You could be lucky somewhere to, to find one that was made slightly better than the rest, but generally they're quite low quality and nearly always branded with something. So I think those were the two primary reasons. And thirdly, for me personally, I have a big head. So for me, the fit of a cap has always been difficult. I struggle to find a cap that looked good on my head, basically. I get told I have a big head as well. I think that's what people mean, right? Yeah. I'm not quite sure. Um, but tell me, and then what about this moment where you guys decided that you were going to do something about it? Obviously, you bring different sets of skills. We'll talk a bit more about how you work together in a second. But Alex, obviously, you know, you've got a sort of business background. Seb, you're covering off the product design side. You, clearly, both of you have a sort of an entrepreneurial flair. How did you get to the point where you said, look, we can coordinate and combine our skills to solve this problem? Because I'm sure there are loads of people in the world who find products that are not quite up to their standards or that frustrate them, but they don't then take the next step and actually enter the market. How did that moment kind of materialize for the two of you? So I think we, you know, based on our personal needs, we kind of discovered a gap in the market. And we were thinking like, if it's this difficult for us to find what we're looking for, we couldn't find it. So surely the market was bigger than the two of us. That was a kind of an important reason to start looking at this. But Alex and I have always been interested in entrepreneurship. What we liked about this concept, and I think a good reason for why we started to pursue it in more detail and started researching it more, was that it wasn't that complicated. It wasn't, you know, a crazy idea. It was a, quite a simple purpose which we felt that it was possible for us to do this. And also with the kind of limited budget and uh, limited experience from before. So I think that was a lot of the reasons why we wanted to pursue this more. And then what did those early days then look like when you decided that you could tackle this and it was a problem and a challenge that was, yeah, at least of a conceivable size. I think that's really interesting that you identified the sort of potential. What did that look like? Planning, design, the, the sort of the development phase. Was it the kind of classic entrepreneur story? The two of you trading ideas, lots of late nights, lots of failures on the way to those early successes. How did you get the process started? Well, at the time when we started really kind of, you know, looking into this, I had another job and Alex had another job. So Alex was living in New York. I was in Oslo. So it was kind of, we were both thinking about the problem and researching from each our end of the scale. And then we were kind of just piece by piece, just trying to get a bit more information. I think we we're both big fans of kind of failing fast. I think it's important in entrepreneurship that not all ideas should be pursued. So it's important to try to really quickly uncover if the idea is worth your time or not. So we really wanted to try to fail fast if we were to fail. So we started developing the concept, you know, the, the name, the brand, the product, uh, most of all. We started developing some prototypes, contacting some partner factories and kind of slowly while we had other day jobs, kind of the brand and product kind of um, started to, to find its shape. And we took all our savings and basically produced our first batch of Varsity Headwear branded products and thought, you know, let's test this as soon as possible and see if, you know, our friends and family like the product, like the idea, and, you know, are they willing to put their money into this? Talk to me a bit about the positioning, because I find it intriguing that it's unashamedly, it's not a, a luxury product per se, because as you both said, it's very functional, but it has 
a premium feel, look, uh, fit. And it's also very important how you work with suppliers, other partners to bring the best sustainable practices into your production process as well. There's lots of different, some conflicting things involved there. How did you balance out those demands? You know, the need to make something that was premium and in that sense, slightly exclusive with this desire to make it a big success and to be in many markets, to be sustainable, but also to be affordable. How did you kind of balance up all of these different factors? Because some of them seem to operate a little bit in opposition to each other. We learn new things every week. And I think that's a big part of entrepreneurship is being flexible and adapt to the situation that you're in. A lot of what we do is, you know, continuously kind of being updated and challenged by ourselves and our team and our colleagues that we work with. So nothing's set in stone and we're always trying to improve. But I think it was pretty clear to us from the beginning that we wanted to create a high quality product because we were selling to our friends and family, right? So we didn't want to disappoint people we knew. That was a starting point. And then we haven't really been that afraid of pursuing kind of the, let's call it a premium cap because potentially the market for a premium cap is, is big if you're able to reach out of Norway. So the, kind of the premium market or the kind of the more exclusive customer, if you're able to target that customer on a global basis, surely we, we, we could make a living out of doing that. So we, we thought that was you know, feasible for us to do. And then in terms of volume versus exclusivity, it's always a difficult balance, but we believe if you always focus on quality and delivering that quality and experience to your customer, hopefully they won't think less of it, even though more people start wearing it. It's a balance between delivering what your customers are expecting and continue to do so. I think uh, at least how we kind of live our life outside of business as well is kind of value for money. So for us, it was important that we make a product that we sincerely believe is value for money. And that's kind of that balance we need to strike us with quality and price. But it's really, really hard. And I also sustainability, you know, which is extremely important uh, nowadays. It's also hard to always know which choices you have to do and should do versus what our customers actually are willing to pay for. So it's finding the balance and everything. And it's, it's always hard for us. And talk to me a little bit about where customers discover the brand or where they find the brand. It's interesting. Of course, I know you have your stores in Oslo and Saint-Tropez also, two quite different markets, but then in big stores, you know, whether it's your Lane Crawford's or Selfridges, of course, not far away from where I am in London. That must be thrilling to be part of the story that some, you know, real big legacy retailers are telling, but also to take some tentative steps and then find really solid ground beneath you in a market like Saint-Tropez, for example. How do you make those decisions? Is it about finding partners, collaborators, whether that's in retail or whether it's on the ground somewhere? who you just have a good immediate rapport with, a relationship with? Is it about, again, measuring ambition with some practicality? How, how do you decide what those kinds of steps look like for the brand? So it's always been important for us to have a physical presence and for new customers to meet us kind of in a physical form and maybe not online, because obviously, as you mentioned, we are a premium uh, at the premium price point. So. It's really important for us to get the customers kind of intrigued, I think, to, to try and, and feel our product. So that's kind of why we've been so heavily pursuing more physical retail. So with the Saint-Tropez store, uh, that was kind of more coincident. Sebastian, you can 
maybe talk about that? Yeah. So the central pay kind of project was really a market test. We thought there was a global market for what we're doing, but we really wanted to test that before we kind of pursued, you know, or invested too heavily reaching out of Norway. So because our grandfather and our grandparents had a, like a holiday home in that area, we knew about Saint-Tropez and we knew that it was a small little fishing village where you had an international kind of tourist group that visited the area. And it was like July, August, you have a hell of a lot of people that come by. And we thought it was a great place to showcase our product and introduce it to people and see if they liked it and if they were willing to put their money on the table to buy one. So. So that started off as a test really. And of course it was a success. We were there ourselves working in the store, speaking to customers. We learned a lot. And we also took the opportunity to do kind of a little market test where we tried to track where the customers were from, just to see if there was one country or one market that might be more interested than others in our product. So we learned so much that first summer and we really gave us the confidence to continue to pursue this kind of international adventure. and. Uh, think about, you know, reaching out to new stores, new retailers, but also looking at other pop-ups that we could, uh, you know, try out ourselves. I must just ask you, and I must just ask both of you indeed, I began by saying we'd come back to this, but uh, the idea of working with, uh, as a, fa a true family business and working with your sibling, um, presumably it's mainly a good thing because you've built something very successfully over the last eight years, but there must be some moments where it's a bit tricky. What, what's it like? How do you guys get along? Is there a shorthand that comes from being brothers that makes it easy? It must in some ways complicate matters uh, on occasion. I've got a couple of siblings of my own. I don't know if I would be able to run a business with them, but maybe that says more about me. How do you guys, how does it work? Is it about dividing and conquering? Is it about, I don't know, how, how do you guys, how does it, how do you make it work? So I think it's something we've kind of learned to make work over the years. So we're really different. We're kind of opposite personalities in many ways. But I think what we've learned is that if, as long as you have kind of the same goal and values and you're pursuing them, you can make it work even though you are different personalities. So I think that's kind of the number one lesson for us over the years. We, we kind of, or how the company works is it's through debate and it's through kind of actually fighting for your idea, but also being willing to dismiss your idea if someone can actually think of something smarter. So, so that's the culture we built in the beginning. It could be quite rough. So we had to warn new team members that uh, this is how kind of the culture here is. But over the years, we've grown into a bigger team and there are more people that are participating as well around the table. So uh, we've kind of, uh, I think it's eased off a bit. But yeah, no, it's for sure always uh, difficult, but it's something you just have to work on. And last week we had like a review meeting with ourselves. So, uh, so that's one of the other things we've learned too, to have places to, to really speak out and get it all off your chest. You touched upon it, Alex, but you know, I think an important part here is that we have complementary skills. We're, we're good at, we have different personalities, but we're also good at different things. And that's much more important than being brothers is that, you know, to start off with, we have a team of two people that were good at different things. And I think that's really important when you start and, and still is. Secondly, what's a bit interesting, I think over the eight past years is that by being a company where you really have two leaders and no one really has the veto right, you have to agree through discussion. 
But what happens then is, of course, that the discussion is often quite direct. Sometimes they're a bit uncomfortable for our, our colleagues that we have a kind of, you know, we have a little argument or we are quite direct with each other. But when you have a discussion, there are room for more people or more voices in the discussion. And I think that's, I'm really proud of that, that we've, since we be, began, tried to encourage our colleagues to participate. It's not just about a decision taken behind the closed door. The decision is taking place in, in the group meetings. And Alex and I, you know, we're, we're championing maybe, you know, different ideas or different ways of tackling the same issue, but it's, there's room for others. And I think that's created the, hopefully a work environment where everyone's participating and we get the best out of the team. It's not just about two entrepreneurs. It's about the whole team. So I'm really proud of that. And I really think that's a part of why we've come this far. Seb and Alex Adams, founders and doers of multiple roles, both at Varsity Headwear. Find your perfect fabric fit and style. Head to varsityheadwear.com. And yes, if you were wondering, they have some perfect little linen numbers just in time for summer. Hats off to them. That's all for The Entrepreneurs this week. The programme was mixed and edited by Jack Dewars. My thanks to him as ever. And special thanks this week to Christy Evans for her reporting on Batch London. And of course, thanks once again to all the teams at Batch and at Varsity. Listen again and find out more about The Entrepreneurs at monocle.com or follow us and catch up with the extensive archive via your preferred podcast platform. A question, are you a Monocle Magazine subscriber? If you're not, you certainly should be. You can find out how to join the club at monocle.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye, and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs.